Let's do it. Main man. Main man. Main man. Main man. Main man. All the people that were working for Main Man were unusual. We were loud, ugly Americans, basically. Main Man, an interesting story, a very entertaining story, a very long, wonderful adventure. Hello and welcome to episode 63 in our series exploring the history of Main Man, which was the management rights company founded by entrepreneur Tony DeFries, who worked with legendary artists in the 70s like John Mellencamp, Moth the Hoople, Mick Ralphs, Dana Gillespie, Lou Reed, Marianne Faithful, Iggy Pop and this guy. Hi, I'm David Robert Jones, me David Bowie. We're continuing to celebrate the 50th anniversary of the release of Bowie's seminal Aladdin Sane album. And in this episode, Tony DeFries provides a fascinating insight into all the factors that influence the lyrics that Bowie wrote for his artistic masterpiece. Being one of the only people that was in Bowie's inner circle through this entire transformation period, when David morphed from Ziggy Stardust to Aladdin Sane, Tony has some really interesting recollections of the key moments in David's private and professional life that provided inspiration for the themes that are the central focus of this classic album. Why was David fascinated with fascination? Why was fascination such a serious thing for him? Part of it because he was always looking for the unattainable. He was looking for... And when he found fame, it wasn't what he expected it to be. It never is. It's always a, either it's more than you want, less than you want, or not what you thought it was going to be. Invariably, it's a hollow crown, something that promises much, delivers little. And that's what David discovered. And he then, of course, wrote a song with Lennon about exactly that, which describes exactly that. Here they are, two of the most famous people in the world, sitting in a recording studio, lamenting the fact that fame is not what it was supposed to be, not what it was expected to be, and is actually an enormous letdown, and even a tremendous disappointment, and possibly a life-changing event that you've got now and you wish you didn't have it, and too late to change. You can't make it go away. That was all packed into Aladdin Sane. And all those songs talk about that in different ways. Let's take, for example, Gene Genie. So back to our cast of characters. Sorinda Fox, probably about the same age as Bebe, and about the same age as Ava, which is 18 or 19, when they meet David. Surrender's the Marilyn Monroe lookalike, playing opposite the Bowie James Dean lookalike in a little promotional film. Mick Rock did the shooting. It was shot uh, in Beverly Hills, some of it probably at the Beverly Hills Hotel and some of it at another location. There's a bar, there's a blonde, and there's Bowie. And Bowie's being Gene Genie. When Angela first encounters Sorinda, this is one of the first uh, of the series of, if you like, Bowie girlfriends that she's going to have to deal with. She meets her without knowing she's going to meet her in New York. She's introduced to her. And 
she makes a choice. And Angela's choice at the time was probably the smarter choice, which was to be friends, to welcome Sarinda as a how wonderful to meet you, to treat her as part of the entourage, to be super friendly, and then to start taking Sarinda out shopping, to get her hair done like Sarinda, to get dressed like Sarinda, to try and look as much as possible like Sarinda. And then when David next appears, because he's off on tour, he's met with two Sarindas. This is just before he's going to do Radio City Music Hall in New York, Valentine's Day concert. So in 1973, and Angela has turned herself into a duplicate Sarinda. Now, at this point in time, Sarinda has a boyfriend called Todd Rungren, um, who's not thrilled with this whole setup, <laughs> by the by. Meanwhile, David, when he arrives and they both come to meet him in New York, he picks Sarinda, not Angela, of the two. And of course, they all end up going to the Radio City concerts and they're all applauding David's performance. This becomes Angela's pattern, but she can't stick to it. When it comes to Ava, she gets enormously jealous and threatens to throw herself out of the hotel window, which is quite a few stories up, and is restrained by Zanetta, who manages to prevent her, and ignored by David, who at that moment in time is caught up with a new fascination, which is Ava. So this is something that, that then becomes a pattern of behaviour for David and Angela. She keeps on pretending that everything's okay. He keeps on trying to get her to be not on the tour, not at the shows, and effectively tries to relocate her so that she won't be anywhere near his touring activity. And this leads to eventually their whole relationship breaking down. And David writes about this in many different songs and goes on doing the same thing until Andrew's finally removed and he's free to do what he wants. But in the meantime, he keeps going with, for example, Ava ends up living at Oakley Street in the UK and after becoming an apparent Angela friend, one day Angela cuts up all her clothes, throws her out of the house. So this is always on Angela's part, a frustrated attempt to try and maintain the idea of this absolutely unconditional love for David and balance it against her own jealousy that she's not the object of his affection, 100%. Now, of course, David is still very dependent on people who will take care of him, protect him, support him. Here's a good example at the performance. So David becomes the first rock star, the first rock act, the first rock performer to play Radio City Music Hall. And this is in February of 
1973, and it's arranged specifically as a Valentine's Day celebration. Radio City Music Hall is owned and managed and controlled by a subsidiary of NBC, which of course owns RCA. Persuading the management to allow the performance of a rock act is very difficult. Getting a promoter to support it is not easy. One of the enormous attractions of Radio City Musical is that it's got a full proscenium arch, a full stage, a full orchestra, and many different contraptions in the stage, under the stage, capable of creating different levels of stage, also flying bridges and screens. For David, it's an opportunity to go back to doing his rainbow performance, but now in a facility that has all the things that he needs to do it. The rainbow was done in a theatre that was very poorly provided for what we really wanted to do. Radio City Music Hall has everything you could possibly want, leaving aside small difficulties with the unions that we had to resolve. (laughs) That's another story. The ability for David to literally fly into and over the audience in Space Oddity and hang on to yourself before when he begins was astonishing. The lighting was phenomenal. The uh, opportunity to use different levels of stages during different parts of the performance made it an ideal location. And everything was very carefully planned. The set list, the discussion, the presentation, the different effects were all rehearsed beforehand. The venue was sold out so that you had over 6,000 people in the audience. The idea, initially, David wanted to do all the new songs. I persuaded him that this was not going to go down well with the fans who were still in Ziggy mode. They were still in Changes mode. They were still in the prettiest star and time mode. They weren't yet in the Aladdin Sane mode. Ziggy was still there. Albeit, Aladdin Sane's songs had been performed, but they hadn't been performed for the New York crowd. So it was, in many ways, early, especially for America. It was early for the American audience to be... So David agreed that he would put the old standards, his well-known, well-performed, well-played and prior recordings on first. And he did. He opened with Hang On To Yourself. He did Space Oddity. He did a whole bunch of the earlier songs. But then, and he did lots of costume changes. I think he did between seven and ten costume changes in this show, which was a major departure and was really allowed for as a result of the staging where you could actually keep things moving along like Ronson's magnificent solo in in, uh, 
Munet's Daydream, he had this marvellous, long, very, very popular solo, Width of a Circle, another one. And David had all these costumes that could be unfastened and fastened again on stage. So he could keep on changing his look from song to song. This went down very well with the audience. They loved that. But then there's a break and David comes back. And if you like, that's the second half of the show. And he starts doing Aladdin Sane songs. And the audience are not sure about those songs. They've never heard them before. So there's not the immediate response. And David occasionally stops and explains what this song is about, or he says something, he has a dialogue. And when he stops and the audience know the song's finished, they start to applaud. Or when he explains something about the song, they start to applaud. They get very energetic at the end of the show when he does his closing number, which is Rock and Roll Suicide, which has always been very popular as a closing number, the encore especially, where David reaches out. But this time, and there is a huge um, surge towards the stage, and one person gets close enough to actually touch David, at least one, maybe more. David faints on stage. He collapses on stage. Everyone is shocked. He's carried off. He revives in his dressing room. He is hysterical because they didn't like his new songs. He's so concerned about the fact that they didn't like his new songs that he wants to get off stage in a dramatic fashion. And he's done this before he did this uh, English concert once, when things weren't going as well as he anticipated, when his new songs weren't getting the same response as his old songs. And he fainted, and it got a lot of attention. But of course, in this case, it gets an enormous amount of attention because he's now a lot more famous than he was when he fainted at some obscure date in the UK. This is New York, this is Radio City Music Hall, this is Bette Midler wanting to get backstage and see if he's okay. It's the whole press corps from the American music press and the American mainstream press that are there. So everybody is caught up in this idea and it becomes a big news item. So in many ways it suited David to do that. It did at least get his new songs attention in the press because <laughs> people are talking about the new songs. But a lot of it was to do with just his absolute need to be loved. And if the audience didn't love him unconditionally, and that's always been the problem, David wants unconditional love, unconditional applause, unconditional support. He doesn't want anyone to ever be not on his side. And he interpreted that puzzlement, the audience suddenly hearing Aladdin saying and those songs as, where did they come from? They, they don't sound like Ziggy, they don't sound like his earlier work. They're very different. And it was a shock, a surprise. So after that, we were more careful about how we presented new songs in terms of what will the audience be comfortable with. 
was a wake-up call for David in many ways. So let's look at some of the specific tracks and let's start, if you could, with Gene Genie. Gene Genie was always a song about Iggy. Walking on Snow White is really, on the one hand, David's describing cocaine, in Iggy's case, also heroin. But he's also poking fun at the idea because Snow White is this wonderful Disney character. And Iggy is clearly not a wonderful Disney character. (laughs) David did this a lot. He liked to mix the real with the caricature. In many ways, the Gene Genie is a dysfunctional person. Somebody who can't drive their module. Somebody who is struggling to get through life. And in many ways, you could be talking about almost any uh, dysfunctional person. Dysfunctional, not necessarily addicted, just dysfunctional, an oddity. Someone who doesn't fit in. In many ways, that was James Dean. James Dean was an icon to millions and has remained an icon to millions, but was a bit like William Burroughs, a largely disturbed, dysfunctional person who could become the person people wanted him to be. When you watch uh, Giant, for example, and you see James Dean going from being the young good-looking, rebellious, love interest who also happens to, by working very hard on his own little piece of land, find oil and then become an oil baron and then become a very tragic, unhappy figure, although he's very successful. And a lot of that impacted David. Those kind of movies impacted David to say... Wow, James Dean could go from being the rebel without a cause, who every teenager was involved with in some fashion, to being this successful but absolutely lonely, unhappy and disappointed oil baron. What a huge scope of opportunity for someone like David who desperately wanted to be a movie star and unfortunately never became a movie star and should have become a movie star but picked the wrong movie which is always a problem so that's Gene Genie Gene Genie is David's unwilling if you like tribute to James Dean so when we decided to make that promo for that song we needed to deliver that message and that's what the message was about. Now, if we look at another song on that album, which is in many ways equally important and maybe maybe equally iconic, is Drive-In Saturday. Drive-In Saturday obviously is very influenced by Mick Jagger. It's influenced by the Rolling Stones. It's influenced by Twiggy. So his name was always... Buddy, and she was Twig, the Wonder Kid, driving Saturday. 
a marvelous line is, especially from David's perspective, who didn't always address teenage girls. And here he says something that resonated with teenage girls in a very significant way. One of his extraordinary lines for me is that she's uncertain if she likes him, but she knows she really loves him. It's an amazing idea. Teenage girls are almost invariably in love with somebody, not necessarily somebody they know, almost entirely somebody they don't know. David Cassidy, James Dean, uh, (laughs) Elvis Presley, somebody they don't know, they're never going to meet, but they know they love them. Would they like them if they met them? They don't know. So, uncertain if she likes him, but she knows she really loves him. That's what David's saying, and it's a marvellous idea because effectively he's reaching out to all these teenage girls in the audience and saying, do you love me? And they're saying yes, (laughs) because they don't have to decide in real life if they love him. They can love him from a distance, and the fact that they can never meet him, they might try, many of them did. Maybe some of them will, and some of them did. And so it is an enormously influential piece of songwriting. It's For me, it's on a par with Dylan's line of telling their girl to get away from my window, leave at your own chosen speed. It ain't me, babe. I'm not the one you need. That's very similar to what David's writing here, but he's saying it in a way that allows the fantasy to be sustained, the fantasy of someone you could love without meeting them. It's a very nice way to go. Now, that um, other side of Drive-In Saturday is that you're going to watch... Mick Jagger to learn how to be a sex object and again David's got this amazing ability to make caricatures he's literally making fun of Jagger in that song although it's not immediately obvious he's saying (laughs) he's literally making fun of Mick as being the possible sex idol of everybody but maybe not and Driving Saturday is a very, very interesting song. Now, time. We've been doing time by this point. We've been doing time for a while. We know what the lighting needs to be for time. We know what the mood needs to be for time. The instrumentation can change, the styling or the presentation can change, but but the lyric time is waiting in the wings is largely influenced by my death the song that david used to perform when we started doing live dates which he actually had been performing even before i met him and which was very very specific to some audiences some people loved the song because they were jack brow fans because they liked the way he delivered it because they loved the idea of the song Other people were totally not interested. What David did with time was he took my death and he turned it into a modern or more modern song where 
the performer is telling his audience that time is waiting in the wings, not just for him, his trick is you and me, boy. He's telling the audience time comes for all of us. Death is waiting in the wings. <laughs> and he uses that to create this marvellous emotional feeling that time is going to win in the end. And again, it's a song that has an enormous amount of impact on audiences because the melody is tremendous, the idea of the song, and we've been doing it by this time for a long time, is that an unseen, unknown, and unstoppable force is waiting for the show to end. It's over. There's no more. That's Everything's over, and there's no more. So it's a very powerful song. And as I say, it's influenced by all these other songs that, not just My Death, but many songs that deal with that same idea of the way things will eventually fail. That the audience and the artist, the performer and the watcher, the star and the musicians, everyone will eventually be no more. It's a very strong lyrical idea and the music suits the mood. Tony DeFreeze with some really interesting insight into the songs that Bowie wrote and recorded for Aladdin Sane. There are some great pieces of memorabilia from the Aladdin Sane era on the Main Man Label website, along with a huge collection of other historic documents, including articles, telexes, letters and production notes, many of them never seen before, that were adding to the Main Man Label website each week. It's a great record of a very exciting period in rock history. That's mainmanlabel.com. And on the website, you can also check out the other episodes in the Main Man series. I'm Des Shaw, and this is a Zinc Media MM Tech production. Thanks for listening.